when I flip those roles and I consider like if I had a son or a child who came to me and said, hey, there's some really heavy stuff I'd like to talk about that involves you and me. Can we talk about it? I think I would not even hesitate to say yes. Like, let's talk about it right now. And that didn't happen. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and the decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Tom Griffin, a writer, a runner, and a guy who walked across America in six months because he wanted to. Welcome, Tom. (laughs) Thank you very much, (laughs) Ronit. I appreciate it. It's nice to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you could be here too. I am very struck by the choice you made to cross this country on your own time and actually on your own dime. What helped you conceive of this project? I guess if you would call it a project, I don't know what you, what do you call what you (laughs) undertook? Yeah, well, I just call it a long walk, but I think I don't, I don't know that I would have called it that at the outset. So, so yeah, you know, it's a great question. Why, why does somebody do something like this? And, you know, it's like anything when we're young, something strikes us. And, and in my case, I was at a barbershop fresh out of the military and um, living at the time in Southern California in Huntington Beach. And I went to a barbershop and was waiting my turn. I picked up a magazine and the magazine was from, it was a National Geographic actually, from April of 1977. And Mm -hmm. there was an article in there about a fella who had walked across the United States, a guy named Peter Jenkins, and he subsequently wrote a book about it as well. And at that point in my life, I mean, the context for somebody doing such a thing didn't exist. And so this was like one of those crystallizing moments. And I read this article and knew two things when I was done with that article. I knew, first of all, that, that I was absolutely going to do it. But then I guess in addition to that, I was like, boy, you can walk across the United States. That's crazy. But I absolutely knew that it was going to be something that someday I was going to make happen. Now, what I didn't know is that it was going to take me, you know, nearly a quarter century to finally say yes to a long term, maybe. Hmm. So I sat on it for a long time, safe to say. I always knew it was going to get done. But there came a moment in time where you know, I'm, I'm now, well, I was like 45 at the time. And I was thinking, gosh, I either need to do this or I need to stop thinking about it. Cause I don't want to be an old person wishing I had done something when I had an opportunity to do it. And so are you saying that when you were 45, you felt like it was a now or never type of age? I did feel that way. And it had a lot to do more with, well, it had a lot to do with everything physically as a runner, my body started to kind of like fall apart and I'm like, gosh, you know, I can still walk. So I might as well do this walk. But then just professionally, I, I was sort of in this space where I had time and I didn't necessarily have to sacrifice or work around too much. So I I was sort of had the luxury of time and, and then also the, the uncertainty of just my physical capability. Mm-hmm. So what's your understanding of why, if you can take yourself back to before you did this journey, what's your understanding of why you wanted to go besides it having struck you as an amazing idea when you were, how old were you at the time when you first saw the article? I would have been 22. Okay. So then beyond carrying out this, this dream, you know, that you'd had mm-hmm. at that age, mm-hmm. why else did you want to go? 
I've thought about this question a lot because I think I've, I've told myself one thing, but the honest answer to that question is something else. I liked the idea of doing something that was going to kind of turn heads. I liked the idea of kind of doing, being the guy that did the one-off thing, the guy that had an interesting story as a result. I think the prospect of, of that basic need for attention was definitely alluring. Although I will say as well, though, that that is not something I was tuned into at the um, time. What was the basic framework for your walk? There's no template. There's no format per se for doing this. It's not like if you're training for a marathon, you kind of can, you know, decide between one of, you know, four or five different types of training plans that essentially are all going to get you to the finish line. Walking across the U.S. or any sort of long through hike, for that matter, is very much an individual journey. I mean, maybe the start and the end points are somewhat similar, you know, ocean to ocean. But as far as what the journey looks like throughout, that's going to be very much unique to the people that are undertaking this. And, and make no mistake, like there's always people out doing this. I know of right now at least a couple people that are walking across the U.S. So, but as far as like preparation... Obviously, there yeah. is there is a certain amount of physical prep that you got to do, and and having been a runner and somewhat of an active person, I didn't sweat that too much, just because I figured, well, I'll get in shape as I go. I didn't have a huge leap between my fitness at the start and maybe the fitness that would have been considered sort of ideal to be doing the sort of mileage that I was doing. So I had that. That was a bit of a luxury that I had on my side. So what I was most concerned about is what all of the other crossers, as they call themselves, mentioned being one of the biggest concerns is like, where do you sleep? Where am I going to sleep on a nightly basis? Because once you get out of range of, you know, where you might be in touch with people or maybe even people, you know, like you're kind of on your own. You got to figure out where am I going to camp if camping is not either accessible or even legal. And then, you know, you have to have a set of personal rules, like as part of my set of rules, to say yes to an occasional hotel, or am I just gonna be like the hardcore crosser and and completely like camp out 100% of the time from coast to coast? So I had to sort of like weigh in on what my personal rules were going to look like. And and for me, I was like, well, I don't. I, my rule is I wanna camp as much as possible, but if that's not possible, I'm okay to stay in a, in a one-star hotel <laughs> or wherever. Right. I was a little bit more open. I didn't feel like I needed to be quite so uh, hard-nosed in that regard. And then the other rules that I had were no rides. I was going to accept no rides, no, no vehicular rides anyway, unless safety or legal reasons dictated otherwise. So I was going to be afoot as much as I absolutely could. So I kind of established those rules. Now, another thing that I, I figured that I ought to do is also come up with my answer to the question, why? Why am I doing this walk across the United States? This was a big question for me at the very beginning, but to me, it was an easy one to answer, even though I knew it probably didn't dig very deep. My answer to the question why at the very beginning was why not? Like, I've got the time, I've got the ability, I can do my physically, like I have the capability. I'm just going to go ahead and do it. Like, it's a long-term goal. I'm just going to go knock it out. And my answer to that question in the early stages of this walk was very... I guess you could say selfish, right? It was very much like about me accomplishing a goal for me. 
you are very clear that for you, it was a personal goal, a test of yourself, and it was a very like insular type of activity. Is that is that yes, accurate? It is. That is 100% accurate. I, I did not expect that this was going to be a social endeavor at all. I was... I was mentally preparing to be alone 95% of the time. I had no indication that had convinced me that I should expect anything otherwise. I had read about a lot of people who had interactions with, with people as, they, as I rode their bike or walked across the U.S. But, you know, these are the people that I believe their story, but I didn't necessarily believe that it was going to be my story as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your expectation as you started was that you were going to be lonesome at all or that you were going to have, I mean, did you expect that you would be lonely? I figured that loneliness was going to be kind of thematic, if not like the overall sort of expectation. I mean, I, I don't know that I thought specifically about that, but that was definitely an assumption. Yes, I was going to be walking on the side of the road by myself, with myself, and I was going to need to figure out a way to like make that work. <laughs> Were you worried about that? No, I I think I looked forward to that. I, I, I ha- obviously had never encountered a challenge that was going to be this long in terms of, you know, its duration. But the idea of being alone with myself while doing something physical is something I I did have a history of. I used to run long distance races, 50 milers, 100 milers. And I think there's a certain amount of practice that came with being involved in those sorts of events. And I just felt like, well, I'm going to do that, you know, to sort of the nth degree. But I never had a problem being alone with myself in that way. What did your family, your loved ones think about your plan? (laughs) 100% support. Like, I mean, I I think that, again, this is, this thing is something that anybody who knows me knew that this was on my, you know, list, so to speak. Anybody who spent any amount of time with me, all my friends, all my family, I kind of have, I guess, a, a bit of a, a reputation amongst them as being sort of the guy that does say yes. Um, But they also have known that this particular goal has always been on my radar. So so I think that generally speaking they they all were were at least, you know, not surprised if nothing else, but but for the most part, you know, I I definitely got plenty of support from them before I even started, you know, when it was just still a an official idea. Can you encapsulate I'm curious about how many are in your family? Well, first of all, my um I come from a uh, a family of five children and two parents. Both my parents are alive and, and still together. There's five of us kids. I'm the second oldest and the first boy. The five of us kids span over, I think, 14, 14 years between the first and the last. My sister, who's older than me, or one of my sisters, she's older than me, and I are really close in age. And then there's a bit of a gap between me and then the the other three kids. So we kind of joke that me and my big sister sort of had this experience with our parents that the other three did not. And I think on some level, that's probably true. And I joke that I was like the kid that sort of, I sort of raised 
myself on some level, and my big sister would probably say a similar thing. We grew up in a house that was very much a happy place. You know, our parents were, were pretty easygoing, but on some level, I, I, I look back on it now and I'm like, I wish that they were a little bit less easygoing. I was a kid that sort of needed some boundaries and, and as every kid does, but I needed, I needed like guardrails, you know, I needed some rules and I don't necessarily remember having many. And I think my, both of my parents, because they came from pretty broken homes, they came together and said, all right, we don't want to be what we new as children. And so we're going to do it a little bit different. And I think their idea of doing it different was sort of like, we're going to do way less. And they were involved, but they weren't necessarily there. And, you know, I was the sort of kid that, and maybe every kid is like this, like we want to have our interactions with, with our family in such a way that sort of lifts us up. And I, I don't know, I don't believe that that happened. Now, my parents might have a different uh, opinion here, but I, I don't really believe that I went through my lower childhood ages feeling particularly close to either of my parents or even validated by e either of them. If anything, I felt distanced from my father and uh, I kind of like, I was more of a mama's boy for sure, but I don't necessarily feel like I was getting from them the same types of like love or even just basic kind of like attention or support that I might have gotten from like the neighbor's parent. Hmm. And so through the course of my adult life, like I've, I've, I've got a series of what I always kind of joke and call them like my surrogate parents, because the things that, you know, my parents were, you know, they did their best, but maybe they were ill-equipped to do some of these other things. I, I managed to kind of find that elsewhere. And and what was the climate like at home when if there, would you go to your parents and talk about troubles you were having at school? Were they the mm -hmm. kind of parents that would help you with that? I did not go to my parents for the most part for things like that. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this a lot. So let me just kind of back up. My my mom would have been who I would have gone to for anything. And there was a there were times in my life where she would kind of be where I go to with my typical like adolescent and teenage questions or, you know, issues about, you know, what's going on. And, and my mom was such a, or is such, a, she looks at things in a very simple way. So us siblings, me and my five or four brothers and sisters, we, we joke that, you know, whenever you throw something heavy at mom, um, you know, like, Hey mom, you know, I'm, I'm having, you know, this, this anxiety or, you know, these issues at school, whatever. And she, her response just generally is like, Oh, Tom, you're tired. You just need to get more sleep. And so, you know, that was, we could kind of expect that to always be the response. So I think once I sort of got in the know and I was a teenager, like I stopped even bothering going to my mom with anything that was, you know, even remotely heavy. I sort of leaned on other people's parents or I just sort of dealt with these things myself and probably more the latter than actually going to other people's parents. I think I was much more self-sufficient or I thought I was anyway. My father, on the other hand, was, um, I, I mean... I don't really have much memory of, of spending any quality time with my dad. He was really into the Boy Scouts and all my and both my brothers were very involved in scouting and scouting just never appealed to me. I thought it was boring. I didn't like dealing with all these like 
grown men who were wanting to boss me around, which is kind of funny that I joined the military. But, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> well, you know what? It's probably it was on your terms and you got to get out of the house. Right. Yeah, that, that's probably a big part of it. Like, could, I think control being in control as a kid, I think, was really difficult for me, but something I really wanted. So I quit the Boy Scouts and I and I always felt like at that point, my dad sort of like like shoved me to the side, although I never really felt like he and I were super tight anyways. My dad used to relate to me in ways that I think he thought you relate to boys. So my dad was sort of more of a locker room buddy than he was the sort of father that, you know, might put his arm around you and tell you that he loves you and that you're doing a really good job. Or, you know, like I I don't have any memory of my dad being, being that doting father, which, you know, I look back and I'm like, damn, you know, I was... I was a pretty interesting young kid. Like I liked to draw, you know, I was really athletic. You know, I, I just had, I had a lot, I thought about things, you know, interestingly, like I think I was an interesting little boy. And I feel like if I was my father, like if I was my father of me, like I would have been, I would have been pretty stoked to have a kid like me. And I don't think that my dad realized that. And I think, like I said, I think he bonded with me in ways that were, inappropriate and kind of surprising now that I reflect back. But I also believe, like I genuinely believe that I think he was doing what he thought you did. Do you have anger about it? I definitely did. And I think it's still, I think it's still there, but I think now it's more of like the sort of thing that you kind of look at and you just sort of shake your head and you're like, it's a damn shame. Like it's a missed opportunity. And there was a time when I was doing a lot of work on this very thing because I was very angry and holding a grudge and, and I confronted, well, confronted's not the right word. I, I proposed a conversation about, <laughs> about, very different <laughs> <laughs> about these things. Well, and I was trying to come at it again, kind of from a place where my heart was open. I was trying to come at it from a, a less loaded, less angry place. And I proposed that we, you know, talk about some things that had, come up in one of my sessions with a therapist and and I really just kind of wanted to get at the root of it and if nothing else just just like I wanted to believe that we both knew it happened and mm. he wasn't interested in well I, I guess that's not his words I just remember proposing the conversation and giving him and my mom a chance to respond before you know I just dove right into it they weren't interested. And so your mom knew what you wanted to talk about too. Yeah, she she did. Yeah. She was she was there when I proposed it to to my dad. And they didn't seem to be on the defense. They didn't there was no any sort of like external indicator that, you know, I had just breached a, a, a difficult subject. You know, if my memory serves me right, I said, you know, guys, I'd really like to talk about this, but I want to give you a chance to kind of think about it before we, we do it. But I want you to know that you know, I would like to have this discussion and it, I never heard back. And I don't speak with my parents super often, never really have. And so, you know, I, I, I guess there's a part of me that I could have maybe prodded and poked a little bit more. But again, when you, when I flip those roles and I consider like if I had a son or a child who came to me and said, Hey, there's some really heavy stuff I'd like to talk about that involves you and me. Can we talk about it? I think I would not even hesitate to say, yes, like, let's talk about it right now. And that didn't happen. 
So do you feel that something in your relationship <clears throat> changed from or in your understanding of the relationship changed at that point when they never pursued it? I think that there was sort of like a period at the end of that sentence that had otherwise sort of been wanting more clauses. Um, yeah. And I think that was the change. I think I think I maybe came to sort of an, an acceptance that that's a conversation we're never going to have. And so this work that I'm going to do is work that I'm going to do alone. And, mm -hmm. and that became my trajectory. And, and I think since that moment in time, which was about eh, probably about 12 or 13 years ago, I've been not only trying to kind of move down this new path, but also in reflection, doing my best to just kind of accept. I, I don't think forgive is the right word. I think it's more like just accept the past for what it is and not like see it as something that I need to necessarily lug around any longer. It, there's no doubt it has an, has had an effect on who I am and how I kind of move myself through the world. And I can accept that. But what I don't want to do is harp on it or use it as an excuse for any sort of shortcomings that me as an adult, I have a chance to alter an outcome that suits me better. You know, I don't want to use my past as an excuse. Yeah. Do your siblings have more of a relationship with your parents? It's interesting because I think if you were to go on like my, at least my mom's like social media page, like the answer to that question is hell yeah. Like everybody's got this amazing connection. But I think that, you know, and, and I've, I've talked to a lot of friends who have a very similar sort of setup. It's like, our families sort of project themselves as being one thing. But then when you really sort of take that family aside and you ask them like really like the truth about what's going on, I think you get maybe a little bit of a different answer. And I think that, you know, I grew up in a, in a very Catholic family where you always needed to be sort of seen in the positive. Like God forbid you had any sort of drama in your family because boy, people are going to talk about you at church. You know what I mean? And I think that that has, is something that continues to this day. All five of us kids live uh, at least a couple airplane rides from where my parents are. And so at best, we have phone conversations or phone um, relationships with them. But I really don't think that like anybody has that sort of like adoring, you know, parent-child relationship with my folks. I think that that we're all sort of like a little bit uh, at an arm's distance away, which kind of represents sort of how all of us have kind of moved through life. And I can speak for myself specifically, like everything, I've always kept people at arm's length, you know, all of, and, and again, as I've mentioned, like not just people, but like relationships, jobs, you know, places like I just, I'm always on the move. And I think that a part of that keeping things at arm's length is to sort of protect ourselves or protect myself from having to have a, like a genuine emotional connection. And I don't think that as a kid, I was ever really modeled how to do that well or at all. And so it's a lot easier for me to have sort of a half way relationship than it is for me to kind of go all in. And, and did you and, ever yeah. see another way to live? Did you ever imagine yourself getting married, having children. Do your siblings have children? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm the only unmarried one. Well, that's not true. My sister, I'm the only one who's never been married. And I have uh, three siblings that have children. 
but I guess interestingly, like me and my older sister are the ones who are single. And I think we were sort of the, uh, the guinea pig kids, you know, for my, for my parents who at age 20, nothing, 21 and 22 were like, Hey, we've got babies. Like, what do we do now? And, and I think they just, they, they just did the best they could, but then they had a little bit of a break and then they had three other kids. And those are the three kids with families. And me and my big sister are the ones kind of like, who, who sort of kept that from happening. So I know you had a podcast for a while marking your journey. I did. And there is the opening episode, I believe, where you're at the Pacific Ocean in Santa Monica at the start of your journey. And I believe you have a girlfriend with you. Mm-hmm. And I am particularly interested in what your girlfriend's feelings were or what she expressed to you about your departure and how long you'd be away? This is a question that I think has a couple different answers, and I'm going to do my best to kind of summarize. My girlfriend at the time, her name is Katie, and Katie came with me to the beginning, to the the start and starting of the, the walk, and in fact walked that first day with me. And Katie and I, at that point in our relationship, I think we were about seven and a half or so years in, to our relationship and we're just partnered we weren't we weren't married we had reached a point where we sort of knew that the future was not going to be one that found us partnered up any longer and we sat on that fence for a long time and and as the beginning of my walk neared and my focus just became more and more sort of obsessively driven towards that and, and I stopped sort of like focusing on maybe some of the other things that were looming in my life. I had a, like I was really struggling with the possibility of this walk being what finalized our relationship. I can distinctly remember us having a conversation about exactly that. Like, is this going to be the last time we, and then fill in the blank, last time we have a coffee together, or last time we, you know, walk together or spend time together or, you know, hug or whatever, like, like all of those things that you, all the, that you sort of count down to that moment where like, if this is how it's going to end, like all the little celebrations that you want to suddenly remember, we had that conversation and, and we decided whether it was a good idea or not, we decided to just basically press pause and, you know, which in hindsight is somewhat dysfunctional, but it's what we did. And it worked at the time. We both. Why do you think it was dysfunctional? Well, because I think it, what it allowed us to both do is stay in that vague space between being together and not being together. And I think that it didn't allow either of us to truly move forward with our lives or it made it difficult, more difficult than, than we both would, have benefited from, I think. Mm-hmm. I know from my perspective, like the walk became as much about anticipating the breakup at the finish as it did anything else. I wasn't very public about that feeling as it as I was working it through, but it was definitely something that became a regular theme in my my mind as I walked with myself. And it wasn't necessarily something exciting. You know, I had this finish line that I figured I would eventually get to. But I also knew when I got there that the end of this relationship with this woman who's who, who I had spent such a great amount of time with and we still adored each other, but we just found that our togetherness was not 
moving forward. And so we kind of collectively decided that we would put a cork in it all. I knew that that was, I knew it was coming to an end. And so there was sort of this bittersweet finish or, you know, anticipation of a finish. I'm excited to get to the end, but I'm also absolutely not. Did you keep in touch with her while you walked or was it understood that you would not have communication? It started as just kind of normal, you know, as the first couple weeks we texted and talked as we would have otherwise. I, um, in my real life, I travel a lot. And so we just kind of talked as if I was on a business trip. And, but as time went on, and I think as things started to sort of shift in my body and in the way I was experiencing myself, not only on the side of the road, but, but also just like being in this space where I was completely vulnerable and, you know, having to, you know, not necessarily rely on, I guess you could say like the masks or the sort of social hats that I put on on a regular basis. Like I was just kind of this dude on the side of the road and I was, I was witnessing myself a little bit different. And I think embodying that a little bit differently than I would have back home. And what I found is as that happened, and we would talk on the phone and it was just kind of our status quo mundane type conversations, which were fine, but they weren't, I found myself getting frustrated with our conversations because it was not necessarily something that, that felt aligned with what was happening as I was out there, I guess on some level, maybe transforming, but it wasn't quite that profound. Are you saying that you felt that you were in a whole new phase of your life and maybe experiencing something bigger than she could understand? I think that's possible, although I probably would would not have ever said that because I did not necessarily know that anything was actually happening at the time. Most of like my the moments that I feel like mattered the most during this walk are things that I have come to realize after the fact. At like the, what? Like you know, like I, I think I started this walk feeling like I had something to prove. And, and I don't necessarily, I, I think it's easy to say like that I needed external attention or I needed to like prove to the world or my whatever, just to people that, that I was worth something, that I was valuable or that I was like, all right. When the reality of that is I was actually trying to prove to myself like it was almost as if no matter what I have done through the course of my life I've always been like a gap away from truly accepting myself for just who I am like the whole idea of being good enough as is I think in theory sounded cool but it's absolutely not something I've ever reflected on myself and believed is the case like I, I think that that the walk gave me so much time with myself, with strangers who sort of like laid out these breadcrumbs for me to kind of pick up and through their acts of kindness and generosity and just sort of like doing everyday people, nice types of things, I found myself accepting myself more along the way than I ever have in my life. And when I finished, I was like, "Uh oh, like now I got to dive back into real life and all of these things that I've started to truly believe and maybe even embody about who I am and and my personal just 
value and self acceptance of self as is, I was really worried that I was going to go back to real life and all that stuff was just going to kind of fall by the wayside. That, that the biggest thing that I walked away with to kind of like long wittedly answer your question is is this idea that you know all that really I mean it, it matters we can give each other sort of this gift of kindness but when we do that we're actually giving each other the opportunity to kind of give that same kindness to ourselves and I think that those things those things work really well together and sometimes one is needed before the other can happen I, I'm curious what surprised you on the walk. Yeah. The biggest surprise on this walk were the or was the abundance of people that came out of the woodwork to do amazing things. As I mentioned, I I didn't expect this to be a very social endeavor. I knew I'd meet people, but I didn't realize that I was going to be meeting probably on the average like half a dozen folks a day uh, randomly uh, unsolicited by me. Like these are folks that just kind of on their own, under their own accord, stopped to say, what the heck are you doing? Or I was walking on the side of the road, pushing a double wide baby jogger, a Thule, in fact, it was a, a Thule chariot cougar was the model of the double wide baby jogger that I had and had all my camping gear inside of there. Now, the front of this jogger had a clear plastic panel on which I put bright pink duct tape that said Walk USA. And so if you were coming, and I was walking against traffic, so if you were driving towards me, in theory, you would see that it says Walk USA on the front of my cart. And on the traffic-facing side window, it said No Baby, because I was <laughs> I was a little concerned that people would think I'm actually pushing a baby on the side of the road. And a handful of people did think I was pushing a baby, and so they called 911, and the, poli- oh. <laughs> and the police would come and make me lift the cover, and I'd show them it's just like camping gear, and we'd have a laugh and, and yada yada. So <laughs> so you got to talk to them about your walk also then, I would imagine. Totally. They were probably pretty curious. Well, they were. And, and you know, on a very serious like sidestep to that conversation, had I not been a white guy, on the side of the road, I think that the story or even maybe the anticipation of that moment would have been a different experience. I, I think it has to be acknowledged that that my experience on, on this trek and, and probably just in life in general as a white male is going to make my experience quite a bit different. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because as a woman, I'm white, but as a woman, I thought, I don't think I could do this walk. Yeah. I, I don't know that I could I don't know that I could do this walk. I'm sure it, it could be done, but if I would feel comfortable doing this walk as a woman and I thought about you being white and how it would be a different landscape for someone who who was a person of color. Yeah. And I also thought about the idea of resources and the luckiness to be able to go and do something like this for the experience versus right. not having anywhere to be. Absolutely. I did my darndest to not ever take that for granted. I mean, I think just by being who I am, I do take these things for granted because the world just affords, I mean, specifically white males access to an abundance of resources that unless you're paying attention, it just happens. And I think that I wanted to pay attention to that because I wanted to recognize the fact that, yes, I'm getting pulled over, like, for example, by this cop, right? I'm getting pulled over. And if my skin were brown, would things be different or would the just the scenario have shaken out different? Would I have ended up high-fiving and getting a selfie with that cop? Maybe so, 
but maybe not. But I can say that I never felt like I had to worry. And I think the absence of worry is part of my privilege. And I wanted that to be something I thought about on a regular. Yeah. So you're walking with the baby stroller, yes, the double okay. stroller, so, and you've got, how do you eat? <laughs> how many miles a day do you do? What do you do if it's so hot or so cold? Like just a couple of those yeah. details. So yeah, so I've got the baby stroller. It's decked out. I'm also wearing like a neon vest and a giant floppy hat to keep the sun off. So I'm a novelty. And on the back, on my back, I've got a, a laminated placard that says walking across America. So whether you're coming from, you know, east or west, you are potentially seeing what I'm doing if you're reading the signs. Now, most people didn't read the signs. They just stopped because they were curious, which I found that fascinating because I wondered, like, would I stop because I was curious? <laughs> like, would I be this person? But they did. And You're saying they stopped because they saw you, not because they read the content exactly. of what you were doing? Exactly. More often than not, folks stopped just to ask me, what are you doing? Not because they saw my sign at all. The majority of people just stopped because they were really curious. And I'll get into your other, to answer your other questions in a sec here. But I think that the theme of folks who did stop, like a lot of folks have said, well, you know, have the, did the people that stop all look the same or drive similar types of cars? or Like they want some something to make sense about all of these people that stopped. And there really is no rhyme or reason. I have to assume that the people who stopped are the people who kind of go through life maybe without blinders on. You know, like they're they're not just zipping to work or like maybe their their pace of life is a little bit slower than someone who wouldn't have seen me because, you know, hundreds of thousands of cars drove past me. And, you know, ratio wise, I met very few people, but the people that did stop were all very curious. And so I don't know. Maybe and open. It sounds like they were open, too, because it had to have been. I I don't know that I would have stopped. Sure. Yeah, of course not. I don't, like I said, I don't know that I would have either. I think I would now, but but I don't know that I would have been quite so bold or brave because I think it takes it's a risk, right? If you're pulling over and saying, hey, dude, what are you doing? So anyway, that that was of interest. As far as just the basic logistics, like I did my best to camp as much as possible. And out west, that was really easy because there's a lot of BLM land, which is Bureau of Land Management land. It's public land that you could just literally go live on for two weeks at a time legally, and then just move your campsite and go live somewhere else for two weeks. Like you could literally live on this land for the rest of your life if you chose. So that was really easy. But as I got further east, camping became a little bit harder to have access to, legal camping anyways. So I had to make different choices. I had to decide, am I gonna illegally camp, which I would call stealth camping, and that could mean anything. I could mean like camping in, you know, a baseball dugout you know, after the sun goes down or, uh, you know, behind a bush at a local library in a cemetery. Cemeteries are a great place to camp because generally if somebody sees you sleeping in a cemetery, they're not going to mess with you. <laughs> but, but so <laughs> That's a defensive camping. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's a safe place. So like stealth camping was a choice. Also hotels was a choice. And since that was a part of my the rules I was allowing myself, that was an option. And then a handful of people invited me in their homes or allowed me to pitch a tent in their yard. I also strategized the route as time went on to kind of veer through or near towns where I had family members or can, or just friend connections. And so they, like I would end my day walking and kind of put a flag in the sand, so to speak. They'd pick me up, I'd spend the night at their house, and then the next morning they'd bring me back to where I left off the previous day. So, hmm. so there was a whole lot of that. But Definitely the majority of my camping happened out west. And then as I got further east, 
it was uh, it was a lot more beds so to speak and then in, as far as eating goes i mean eating was uh, well at home here i'm predominantly vegetarian in fact i am vegetarian here at home but on the road i, w- I told myself i'm going to just eat whatever comes my way cuz if somebody drops off like a burger and fries i'm not going to say oh you know i'm vegetarian i didn't i wanted to just say yes to all mm-hmm. that generosity as it came and i feel like that was a good choice because there were plenty of times in texas you know i got invited to barbecues where literally the only thing on the menu was meat but did you allow yourself to purchase food or were oh, you yeah. strictly oh okay so you had food in your day oh, yeah. it wasn't yeah. Yeah, I wasn't gotcha. just counting on strangers for for food. No. And by the way, my double wide baby jogger had a name. This is sort of like almost like Tom Hanks movie Castaway like Ed <laughs> Wilson, like my cart's name was Little Buddy. Inside Little Buddy was 5 gallons of water at all times, a couple 1 and a half liter water bottles just for easier access, and then like 2 days worth of food generally. Sometimes I had to walk a stretch of 100 plus miles, which would usually equate to like four to five days in a lot of cases. So I would have to stock up and it would be a little bit of a heavier push. But I I usually had two days worth of food and then a bunch of water just in case. But then all my other camping gear, any type of camping gear you would bring on like a multiple night backpack trip was all in that rig with me. You were surprised by the fact that people came to talk to you, though you said that compared to how many people drove by you, it actually wasn't that many. Right. So are you surprised? Would you have thought that nobody would have even come and talked to you at all? Well, I I didn't expect that to be the case. I don't don't know that that's possible to walk 3,300 miles and not talk to another human. So I knew I would talk to some folks. What I didn't expect, and this to kind of like circle back to your original question, what I didn't expect is, is how kind these people would be like the overwhelming abundance of kindness from every single person I met is what I am. I ended that trip. I continued to shock me all like through the very end. And I think on some level, this is because like, I never really felt like fully able to trust others. And I'm kind of simplifying and generalizing that comment. But what I found is that every single day, like, that past belief was just being complete, just chipped away at and pummeled by this like abundance of kindness from strangers. And I'd be remiss to not share this one story that that kind of like capitulates my ability to receive this kindness. If I can share this one story. Yes. So I was on the, the eastern side of Phoenix in Mesa and walking through a very affluent part of town and just got off one of these like canal trails back onto the main highway or uh, main main roads anyway, and back on a sidewalk. And this gentleman kind of chased me down when I was waiting at a red light. He was a tall guy, probably like maybe six four, six five. He was a black man. He had dreadlocks and had some cardboard signs in his hands. And he like chased me down. And he was like, "Wait, wait, hey, wait up!" So I stopped and. And he pointed to my cart, pointed to little buddy. And he's like, hey, is this thing, is that actually what you're doing? Are you walking across the U.S.? And I was like, well, you know, I'm in Arizona, dude. Like I'm going, I got a long <laughs> way to go. But yeah, that's that's the plan. And and he, he kind of like, just, you could see inside, it was sort of like stared off into the distance and he was sort of like shaking his head and he was a big smile on his face. And he said, man, you know, I've, 
I've always wanted to do something big, but I'm homeless. And, and I've been homeless for the last 15 years. And, you know, I don't think that it's in the cards for me. I don't think I'm going to really do anything big like this. And then he introduced himself, told me his name was Lion, Lion, like, you know, rar. And, <laughs> and, and, uh, and we got to talking a little bit more, but then he kind of circled back to, to how we started the conversation. He was like, man, I'm really, really happy to see you doing this thing. I'm really happy to see you doing your big thing. I want to ask you this question, Tom. I want to ask you, can I, can I give you some money? And I was like, <laughs> Lion, oh my, like, come on, Lion. You know, and in my mind is racing, thinking, how do I tell him no? Because, you know, I'm budge- I've budgeted for this. I've got, you know, a couple hundred bucks in my wallet. Like, I, I, don't, I don't need anything. I'm not in need of anything. And so, you know, after my mind races through and I kind of him and haw for a second, I say to Lion, you know what, man? Thanks, but no thanks. You know, I'm, I, I told him I was square. You know, I was all set and good to go. And Lion, like, crossed his arms in front of his chest and he shook his head. Just kind of gave me that look like, I don't know, somebody who was not very happy with the answer just gave me. And he shook his head and he said, Tom, if you say no to kindness today, then tomorrow when kindness comes your way, you're probably going to say no to it then also. And then down the road, when kindness comes around again, you're going to not even recognize it because you have been saying no to it for so long. And at some point in your life, you might even be thinking that like kindness doesn't even exist. But here's the thing, it does. But because you've been saying no to it for so long, you don't even see it anymore. And he says, so let me ask you again. Can I give you some money? And now, I just, like, he schooled me, right? You know, so I, I, yeah. I was absolutely at that point going to sort of like with my tail between my legs say yes. And I did. And he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out $1 and he hands it to me and he says, Tom, somebody gave me this dollar and I'm going to give it to you. On that day, it could have been over and my life would have been changed forever. And it's because up until that point, so many people had offered me things of all sorts and I had said no to the majority of them. But Lion told me it's not about the thing. It's about the participation in each other's lives that matters. And the kindness, it may be sort of represented by a thing, but the kindness is what we need to say yes to. And, and the thing is just a thing, but the kindness can't be stopped. And he ended up giving me probably, well, we ended up giving each other a dozen or so hugs before like, the time came for, my, for me to cross that street after like three or four changes of the light. And... He told me before I left, he said, I want to get your phone number. I want to call and check in on you along the way. And sure enough, he called me twice over the next like three months just to make sure I was okay. Like this is a guy who's living in a way that I aspire to. And yet he's, you know, he's in this predicament that, you know, it just, it, it, it just sort of throws everything into sort of this this ripple. And, and but he taught me something that I will I aspire to, you know, apply to my life on a regular basis. But that moment shifted my ability to say yes to the to kindness. And it kind of changed my whole energetic output. And 
I mean, I can almost graph it. Like up until that point, I probably, you know, met a half a dozen people or so. But after I met Lion, I met a half a dozen people every day. And it was because of him. He like changed the course and the trajectory, not only of my walk, but of my life. That's, I love that story. Yeah, he's one. That's, uh, and you tell it, you tell it really well. No, thanks. Thank you. But I really feel like I saw him. He's amazing. I have gone back to try to find him and I've asked around to, cause he told me he was in the same space for 15 years. And I've, I was driving through Mesa a few months ago and I went back to where, to the very space that I met him. And I mean, it was the middle of summer. So anybody in their right mind wouldn't have been outside anyways. Yeah. And sure enough, he wasn't, but nobody seemed to know who he was or, or what. So I don't know. I just, I, like what I want to go back and tell Lion because he told me that he felt like he had never done anything big in his life. And I have told this story to a lot of people and most of the people I, I tell like can feel it, you know, and they apply it to their lives. And, and I want to tell them like, dude, you've done something. I know that it doesn't necessarily like make good how his life is, but, but I feel like we all need to, like if we have an opportunity to tell somebody the impact that they've made on our life, we ought to do it. Now that you've done the walk and now that you're older and now that you've understood more about your family of origin and what you want, what do you think you would like to see happen for you relationship-wise in the next couple of years? Whoa. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. I am so attracted to the idea of, well, not the idea, but to, uh, to, to intimate connections. And I don't mean that in, in a sexual sense. I mean like intimate mm-hmm. in terms of like an, an emotionally intimate connection with another human being. And I recognize that going through just day-to-day life, like that's not something that we can necessarily expect is going to happen. I mean, it happens, sure, but it's not something that every day is something that you can kind of lean on as, as going to happen. I do believe it's something that we can make happen. When I think about my future, I think about my life as somebody who's kind of finally like zipped up and fit nicely into sort of the skin I was given in such a way that it feels like my skin finally, and then moving through life in a way that allows these sorts of intimate interactions to happen on a, like a longer scale. Yeah, I absolutely, I I want to be able to, I want to be able to apply this to, to a partner. I want to be able to, I mean, I think I'm probably, I'm not beyond the age of having kids, but I think that that's probably not in my, my deck of cards and that's fine. But you know, were you ever interested in having kids? I was, yeah. I always assumed that I was going to have like a big family. But, you know, I also grew up Catholic. Like, I think we all sort of are sort of fed that story. Mm-hmm. And that's just what you do. But, but yeah, it was no doubt in my mind that I was going to have, you know, I was going to get married and I was going to have kids and, you know, it was all going to be good to go. And then, you know, you snap your fingers and suddenly 25 years go by and you're like, oh, wow, that never happened. I wonder if it's ever going to happen. So it becomes much more of an intentional decision than just something that happens in, through the course of life. Are you satisfied with yourself right now? I am. If satisfied implies like I'm happy with everything sort of being as is, then the answer is no. Because I feel like my as is, though I'm happy with it, I feel like there's there's more road to go. There's more places for me to 
do some work and there's more areas and relationships for me to to develop and and I think there's a lot of room for for me to just become a better human, a more thoughtful and mindful human. So no, no, I'm 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 not. I I want I want to do the heavy lifting and the work that's required to, you know, get there. But you know, in that in that regard, I don't know that satisfaction is ever going to be achieved. Are you proud of yourself? Ooh, that's that's like a dangerous question. I think, and I only say that I think because that word has always been a kind of a bad word in my in my life, right? You're not allowed to be proud. Like it always has to be a suffer fest, you know. We always have to kind of like make life harder in order to to make it worthwhile. I am able to now finally see myself and say, you know what? Right now, like I am happy. So sure, I'm proud of the things I've done, but I am happy in this very moment, like in this one second right here, talking to you, like. I can tell you that I'm happy and not feel like I'm, you know, that that's clouded by anything. Where do you go from here? What's your next move? Every day that I was out walking, I wrote an Instagram post and uh, posted at least a photo of somebody that I met. So if you go to my Instagram, my Instagram Mm -hmm. is Tom's Walking Life. Tom's Walking Life on Instagram, you'll find daily posts from literally day one to day 205. You'll meet a bunch of the people that I met along the way, a fraction of them, but nonetheless, you'll get to see their faces, you'll get to hear their stories. So that's a place where you can really get a sense of this story on a day-to-day basis. I do some occasional blogging, although my, my blogging uh, regularity is, is not at an all-time high. Tomswalkinglife.com is where you'll find information about my my what I just talked about and some other things, as well as links to my professional page which is just my name, TomGriffin.com. I have a consulting and uh, leadership development business with which I sort of take these messages and all my life stories and whatnot and bring them to potentially aid whatever client has hired me to uh, to work with their team. So, And there's a book too, right? Yeah. You're, you're, you're in there, your revisions of your book. Yes. So yeah, I wrote a book about this walk and it's not just a travel log. I wrote something that I felt, felt like I would want to read, which is to say, yeah, it tells the story of the journey, but it also tells a handful of other stories in there as well. Tom, thank you so much for coming on and sharing what you've learned. I really appreciate that you had the time to do this. Ronit, I I really appreciate you making this space. It's been a real pleasure sharing this time with you as well. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more information on this episode, photos, community discussion, and other episodes, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Thanks for listening.